mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey guys, welcome to Marriage Martinis. I'm Adam, here's Danielle. Hi. 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 So this was uh, an interview that I did a couple weeks ago, maybe a little more than a month ago, with the founders of Grown and Flown, which is a really awesome platform um, for anybody who's raising teenagers or like just wants to better communicate about teenagers or has daily interactions with teenagers. And I was so excited to talk to them because I, I don't know if you know, we have a teenager. We have a 14-year-old. We do, we do have a teenager. We do. We're new to teenage years, we but have we a, have one. We have a tween also. Um, and I was really excited to talk to them because I feel like a little bit like we're doing an awesome job, but also in some ways there are times when I feel like I have no idea what we're doing. Yeah, I feel that way too. Right. Yeah, sometimes like see, you do not know what you're doing. Oh, right. Yeah. I see <laughs> her developing into this awesome human being, but also at times I'm like, holy crap, did I just completely do, like put go in the wrong direction with that? And, I, and there's nobody there saying, yes, you did, or no, you didn't. Mary Dell Harrington and Lisa Heffernan are the founders of Grown and Flown, and you can find their writing on the New York Times, the Washington Post, Forbes, and they were also in People magazine named Two of 25 Women Changing the World. So we talk about all kinds of topics. Each of the topics I feel like could be like a series of episodes, but it was nice also to dip in and just sort of like get some real tips and strategies for a lot of different things. And that's what their book is. It's sort of just something that you could dip into, like they say, when you need to talk about certain things like technology or what to do when your kid no longer wants to hang out with the family or how to talk to them about alcohol and drugs. And we we talked about a lot of different things. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Send it to anybody who has teenagers. There's a lot of good information, and their book is great. I read it, and it's awesome. So check out the episode with Grown and Flown. Hi, Mary Dale. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Danielle. How hey, are you? Daniel. I'm good. Hey, Danielle. Nice to see you. So I know you guys are in the middle of your big promotion and everything, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm so excited. We are very excited to meet you, excited about the book tour. It's a big time for us at Grown and Flown. Yeah, and I was so, I have a 14-year-old, I have an 11-year-old, I also have an 8-year-old who right now is by far my easiest child. So uh, reading the book for me was huge because I am, you know, I guess your first child is always sort of the guinea pig. And, you know, so I'm trying to make as few mistakes as possible with her, although I'm sure I've messed up 
plenty already. But now with my second, I feel like I will be in a little bit more of a groove, maybe, hopefully. It's definitely a big learning curve for parents. Yeah, yeah, it is. But the book is awesome. And why don't you tell everybody a little bit about just Grown and Flown in general, how you started it, and then what made you want to write the book? Adele, you want to go ahead? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll jump yeah, in here then. Lisa, Lisa um, you do. We started about seven years ago. At the time, we had kids in high school and college ourselves. And we just felt like we were going through the toughest years of parenting, and we were doing it very much alone. The experts in our lives had disappeared. We didn't talk to our kids' teachers or their coaches, because that was up to them to do. We didn't go into the pediatrician with them anymore. And some of our mom community had also begun to disperse, because our kids had started to learn to drive. So we felt like we were going through some of the toughest and most consequential years of parenting, and we were going through them without experts in community. So we thought we'd jump in and try and create that. That's awesome. So this was seven years ago. You guys were already friends. We were. We were. We became friends when our youngest were in elementary school. We had this cute picture of both of the kids at their fourth grade graduation. You know, they're opposite sides of the stage and they're just adorable and they're so little and now they're both out of college. So we've known each other a long time. Oh, that's awesome. I know it's so important to have that connection and that tribe when you're going through it all. And now what Grown and Flown has become, it's amazing because I know you guys have like 130,000 in your Facebook group. Parents can all kind of talk and commiserate about whatever's going on, teenage-related or college-related, empty nester-related, all of that. And I think that's just so awesome. And it's such a blend of you've got funny stuff, you've got sentimental, you have a little bit of everything. It's lively. It is among the most engaged Facebook groups, we're told, by Facebook. I believe that. I believe that. 130,000 is, wow. I mean, you must have some crazy admins going on on there to to keep it (laughs) all. We've got wonderful admins who are absolutely dear and work very hard to try and make it, you know, an enjoyable place for the people who are there. Keep everybody out of trouble. I was lucky because I'm the youngest of three kids. So my kids are a few years behind my brother and my sister. So I've gotten to watch them you know, screw up their kids. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, they've done a really good job, actually. I only hope I, I do as good of a job as they do. But basically, I was able to sort of look to them as the steps I need to take as my kids were approaching the teen years. And it made, did make it a little bit easier for me. And my kids have their older cousins to sort of rely on. But for those of us who don't have that support, It is important that we make a community and sometimes it has to be Facebook or it has to be Instagram. It has to be social media because sometimes it is hard in everyday life to make, you know, the right friends, the friends who you're going to trust. Maybe you need to step back a little bit and not get so much personal detail from people who know you so intimately. And so it's a great resource. And then tell me about the book because I have read the book. I love it. But what do you want everybody out there to know about the book? What can they get from the book that they can't just get online at Grown and Flown? Well, the materials and stories in the book, a small amount of it exists online, but most of it was brand new for the book. So we went out and found the smartest, most wonderful, insightful experts we could find across a huge variety of topics from the woman who runs student health service at Columbia. So we, you know, we asked her all the questions about what you need to know when your kid goes off freshman year in terms of their physical and mental health to the professors who teach the most popular class at NYU, which is called the Science of Happiness. And they told us loads um, that we can pass on to our kids about 
how to find happiness, how to use the stress in their lives in a constructive way to Jess Leahy or um, Lisa Demore. So we went around and found the smartest people we knew and brought their insights together. We tell a little bit of our own stories. The book starts with um, two of our epic parenting fails because we don't want anyone to get too deep into the book and think that we think that by any means we've got this down. So we tell two stories right. Yeah, that happens before chapter one. You know, you're not even in chapter one and you've already learned all you need to know about Lisa and me, which is we have had plenty of our own screw ups along the way. Right. And that that makes it, I mean, yes, and that makes it so relatable, which is awesome because that's exactly what we want to (laughs) hear. But the book is also designed really as a handbook. We actually have a guide that we can give readers, which goes through what page you can find, what guides on. And it's not the kind of book, it's not a novel. You're not, it's not a it's not a treatise. You're not going to sit and read it cover to cover straight through. It's a book that you dip into. It's a book that you go back to again and again when you find yourself in different situations that the book touches on. We write at Grown and Flown for parents who have kids roughly 15 to 25. You know, you're a little bit on the cusp, but it's not so hard and fast. Basically, people have kids in high school and college. We didn't want the book to start with the first day of high school and end with the last day of college. So we cover broad topics that have to do with mental health and happiness, that have to do with love and sex, that have to do with family life. These are things that are relevant, every bit as relevant to a brand new ninth grader as they are to our kids who've been out of college for a year or two. Yeah. And a lot of what you talked about, even though um, actually my niece just went off to college first year, but for my kids, for one who's just starting high school, I mean, a lot of what you talk about is just basically also just the angst of transition. Right. So a lot of what you said about college was interesting to me just from the perspective of my niece going off to college, but it was also interesting to me from the perspective of, well, this is really relatable actually for my daughter who's a freshman too, because it's that same nervousness, that same sort of how much do I pull away? How much should I still be hovering? All those questions that we're dealing with from the time our kids are toddlers learning to walk until we send them off. And okay, do I catch him when he falls or do I let him fall and scrape his knee or do I let him fall? So all of those, those decision making, you know, am I too close or am I pulling back too much? That's a constant push pull for us as parents. And I, I feel like I felt that every step of the way. Well, I, I'm definitely not a helicopter parent but do I want to, you know, be this laid back? Am I bordering on friends or so we're, I think we're all sort of dealing with that. So it's relatable, I think, on all fronts. Thank you. It is. And we tried to give parents some, you know, we tried to discuss it like we're discussing it now, which, you know, sort of big picture, but we also tried to get parents some real guidelines things they can measure their behavior by, things that they could think about in the back of their mind as they're having that very question that you're asking. Am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? Am I letting my kid fail or am I just supporting them? So we go through some guidelines and some things that you know will evolve for you. Some things will work better for some parents. Some things will work better for others. But we give some real actionable guidelines in the book that parents can work with. Yeah, that was going to be one of my first questions because when I asked our listeners in our community, what questions would they have for you? One of the biggest ones, obviously, is how much do I really just let my kid mess up? And it's so hard to watch them when you know that what they're doing is making the wrong decision. And oh, it's so painful. But yeah. And so my first question is, 
how do we know, number one, if we're too close or if we've moved back, you know, too much? And what are some of those guides, some of those you know, things that we can pinpoint to let us know if we're too far in one direction or the other? I think what you're talking about is one of the hardest things about parenting at this age group, knowing how much to push and how much to pull, how much to, you know, back off and how much to be right in there and super hands on. I mean, we think of this age as being on a continuum where you're going from very hands on to more of a mentor role. And that will change depending on not only the age of your child, but what kind of kid you have. I have a son and a daughter, and I would say they are like night and day. Um, what worked for one didn't really work for the other. And even though my son was my guinea pig kid, which is what you said before, Danielle, is exactly how I referred to him yeah. in the book. I do think that there were certain things that in retrospect, I wish I could have thought about in terms of answering your question or knowing how much to do too much or too little. I mean, one analogy that we have is the analogy of a new driver, which is something that many parents of teens can relate to. So when you've got a brand new drive, you're a little bit, you're not there yet with your 14-year-old, but I'm you will so be I'm so happy soon. about that. I'm yeah. steering every <laughs> non-teen driver moment. <laughs> yeah, enjoy it. Enjoy it. It is a good thing, you know, when they learn how to do it and they can take themselves places and totally. help, you, help you out. But think about what it was like when you were learning how to drive. You were in the pass. you were in the driver's seat, your parent was in the passenger seat. They on good days would sit there and say, okay, don't follow too closely, stop to at a complete stop as opposed to grabbing the wheel and trying to drive themselves, which would do you no good. And you know you would never learn and that would be a recipe for disaster. So that's sort of one analogy to keep in mind is, are you letting them sit in the passenger seat and learn to drive? Right. Another thing we find that works really well is thinking about the thing that you're about to do, would you do it for somebody else's kid? Would you do it for a niece or a neighbor or a friend's kid? Because if you would, you're probably not doing too much. So if you're, you said you have a, a niece starting college, if you would do something for her, it's probably not overdoing it to do it for your own kid. So sometimes when we dissociate the situation from our own kid and we think about it in terms of another kid. So if your niece came to you and said, would you read over my college essay and tell me if it makes sense and whether you see mistakes? Sure, you would do that. If she asked you, would you help me write this because I really don't know what I want to say and hands you the pen, of course, you'd have nothing to do with that. So sometimes when we think about it in terms of somebody else's child, it becomes a lot clearer what we should do or not do. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I also think that one way that we, I mean, obviously, if there's any kind of danger involved, I think also, you know, because sometimes I feel like, I think even as little kids, you know, when they want to try something and do something and you don't want to be the parent who says no, and, but you have to because there's some kind of, you know, physical danger. So I guess that's also, you know, one way to well, gauge. That, that goes back to Mary Dell's analogy of the driving. If you've actually thought your kid was going to hit another car, you would grab the wheel, right? right. Right. Totally. That's the point at which you'd grab the wheel. That's the point at which you'd scream. That's the point at which, you know, you'd so-called overreact. So exactly that when there's danger, yes. When there's harm to another person or to our kid, we may find that's the moment to step in. The driving analogy works really well when you're trying to think of what to do. Mm-hmm. I that, think definitely. Another thing that people think about is whether or not your kid is making forward progress. And one prime example is the gym bag or the backpack. A lot of kids just have a really hard time getting all the things packed in their gym bags. And we are forever nagging them. Like, did you get your tennis shoes? Did you get your mouth guard? Did you get all those little things that tend to not show up in the bag on time? 
So if you can get your kid to at least learn how to get all their contents in their bag, maybe they weren't able to do that last semester or last year, and now they are. That's definite progress. Maybe next semester or in a few weeks or a few months, they'll know that they have to put it down with their backpack or by the back door the night before so they don't scramble in the morning before school starts. Then you're seeing that they're making this progress and you can back off a little bit because you're seeing that they are doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you do just have to, well, they give you the call of mom, I forgot my gym bag. It's <laughs> That's really hard because that, you know, we all know that means a big fat zero, but at the same time, sometimes you got to do it. It's, but, it's, you know, I think if you think about what Maridel said, each kid makes progress at a totally different pace. So what you're looking for is progress. So, you know, did, did my kid forget their gym bag once this year? I might bring it in. Mm-hmm. If this is the third time in two weeks, I might think differently about it. So are they making the, and we're just using that as an example. Obviously it's a, it's an over, it's a simplified one, but are they making forward progress for them? Because they're on their own timetable. We can't really hold them to the timetable of another kid. Yeah. What about, I guess I'm talking more about high school than college, obviously, but when it comes to academics and sports, how much involvement as parents should we be having with teachers and coaches? I mean, is there a number that's too many times that you're calling or emailing a teacher or now it's so easy to send an email and maybe too easy or talking to the coach or how do you gauge that? How do you know if you have too much interaction? One of the most important things that kids can learn to do in high school is learn how to talk to adults, learn how to have a relationship with their teachers and with their coaches and ask the questions and advocate for themselves is something that really switches when kids go from being little kids to being in high school. There's a big step up. I'm sure you're seeing it in your own household with your brand new freshmen. They're really going to be expected and will be very important for them to learn to develop those relationships on their own. In the book, we had a a high school teacher write about this, about the years of high school and how that transition happens. The answer is that you should have very little, by and large, unless the situation is acute. In other words, you need to tell them a serious problem that your kid's having. Um, What you should be doing is coaching your kid at the beginning on how they do that. You could say to your kid, I know you need to get out of practice this week because something's happened. You need to explain it to your coach. You might want to, let's think of the things that you might want to tell your coach so that they understand that you're not shirking your responsibility, but something relevant has come up. So guiding them in their interactions with adults, but rather than doing it for them. Over the course of high school, you should be doing very little for them in terms of interacting with adults, unless it's obviously a crisis situation of some sort. So if they say to you, you need to call my teacher, they're just, they gave me a bad grade on this essay and it's not fair and I need you. The answer usually should be no. Yes. Okay. The answer should be, let's talk about how you might write, let's do some drafts of an email that you might do to your teacher. And let's think of some things that when you go in after school to talk to your teacher, some constructive things that you might say to them. Exactly. Great. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you just told me that. (laughs) (laughs) What about for teens? Because a lot of what I hear, and I know it goes on in my house too, is a lot of times when we want to talk to them or we want them to be engaged at family events or, I mean, it was just Rosh Hashanah for us. And, you know, we're dealing with a lot of teenagers now who want to go up to their rooms and be on their phones and how do you deal with a kid who's really resistant to being with the family and, you know, making time 
to be with their siblings and their parents and their grandparents while they're still living at home. It's a definite thing. And don't be alarmed when your kid, you know, gravitates to their room and and wants privacy. In some cases, they're just decompressing. You know, they have a lot going on in their world and in their life. They're changing so much. They're in this new environment in high school. And it can be overwhelming for them. So giving them their space is an important thing to do. But also trying to find these sort of I call them like a life raft conversation for my son and and I, it was, it was university of Texas football where even if we were like at each other or he was non-communicative, we could begin having this very neutral conversation about something that we both really loved. I happened to go to the university of Texas, which is why it was sort of a, you know, logical thing for me. I mean, he was a little boy. I taught him, you know, all the fight songs and we watched all the football games and he had orange and white jerseys and, So it's kind of, it became our go-to topic of conversation. And it's great to find those that have nothing to do with academics, SATs, what's going on at school, what they have to do or need to do, just a safe conversation topic. Yeah, we've done that with, my kids are obsessed with Green Day. So every time Green Day tours or comes out with a new album or something, you know, the the tickets are always kind of expensive that I say, well, you can go, but you have to go with us. (laughs) That's great. That's a great deal. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, they don't tour nearly as much as I need them to in order to have those constant (laughs) family times. But that has been a really good bonding. Yeah, really good bonding thing. I think that's great. Yeah, because it also helps if you schedule some of that time. So you lay it out in advance. The worst thing that happens is you have a kid come home, they're angry and tired after a long day or just exhausted. And then you say, no, I need you to spend time with the family. That's like the worst moment to have the conversation. So sometimes it helps if we have this conversation saying, you know, every Sunday night, we're going to sit down, we're going to have Sunday night dinner as a family, start a week off that way. You know, you kind of lay out the milestones in the week that are going to be sort of non-negotiable family moments. And then they already know what to expect. So you don't have that sort of overtired, overstressed teen that you're trying to negotiate with. Yeah, and it becomes routine also. (laughs) Exactly. Mm-hmm. Food, food is really key. Obviously, you know that. As oh, I know, all moms do. I think know that snacks. You know, making sure that they have something good that's like a good protein snack or something when they come home. Most kids are absolutely starving and exhausted, like Lisa said. When they're just tired beyond belief, and they just need a moment to eat something. You know, catch their breaths, have a little privacy, probably, and then they can be more human beings. Hmm. Yeah. And then one of the things you also say in the book, some of the strategies that you use to interact with your team that I really liked was even the little things like playing music in the house or, you know, that you all like or um, watching a movie that you're all certain things like that, that maybe, I mean, I can't, you know, like I said, Green Day only tour so often. So the music in the kitchen over the Sonos or whatever it is that at that moment will maybe bring them into the room little things like that, that we're always trying to push the right buttons to get them to sort of come in to play with us. And some of it's, some of the things you're talking about are reminders of childhood. So just taking them back to a time when we did everything together as a family and those reminders pull them back in again. Mm, yeah. That connection with nostalgia. Yep. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Obviously the dogs play a big role in your household. It sounds like. Yes, they do. Um, they do for ours as well. And Lisa had a wonderful lab with her boys growing up. And for us, it was just like taking the dog for a walk ended up being 
kind of a great tension break because it's a little bit like driving, you know, where nobody's really looking at each other, but you're operating in a parallel fashion. And then you can kind of have conversations and not have to make eye contact because you really have to watch what the dog's up to. So that always is a good, that always works well for our family. And the conversations that we have in the book, you talk about really watching how you present things when you start to talk to your kids as if like the first thing that I want to ask when they come home from school is how was the test? How did it go? Like that's literally the, you know, that's what's on my mind all day. They studied for this test. They have this big test. They, they walk in the door and I want, the first thing I want to know, unfortunately, is how to go. But that might not be the right approach. Yeah, we spoke to, as I mentioned earlier, two professors from NYU about science of happiness. They would argue that is very much the wrong approach, that you're trying to put your kids in good frame of mind and you've already just, and we can't help it. I mean, we're right there with you. We've really haven't, we've only upped the ante and upped the pressure in our homes. The one thing that we feel really strongly about and we try and emphasize in the book is our kids are living in a much more, as we all know, much more pressured environment. Our home needs to be a respite. Our home needs to be the place where there's the least amount of pressure possible for them. So they need to know our expectations and our academic expectations, but we need to try as hard as we can to have that be the place, as Mary Dell said earlier, that they can come and decompress. And if the first words out of our mouth is, how did the test go? That's not a place they can decompress. You guys already know how much Daniel and I love those Zaka chewables. We literally take them every single time. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Time we record. I mean, for us, that's because we're drinking a lot during the episode and it's good for our recovery, but it's not just for after drinking too much. They're awesome for if you're on a long travel, an intense workout, just feeling eh. They're just great in all situations when you need your body to recover. They come in these cool little packs that are easy just to take on the go, to parties, for work, for travel, exercise, wherever you need them. They're naturally sweetened with xylitol and stevia, featuring Japanese raisin, which has been used over a millennium in Asia, aids electrolytes and hydration, master antioxidant glutathione support, contains clinically tested ingredients, non-GMO certified, and they taste amazing. They have this awesome berry flavor. They just really delicious. And to top it all off, there's a money back guarantee. If you don't like them, they'll give you your money back. You got to check out these little chewables from Zaka. They're really great. Head over to ZakaLife.com. That's Z-A-C-A life.com and use our promo code marriage to receive 20% off. ZakaLife.com promo code marriage. We've spoken a lot about Loom journals in the past and how great they are for kids and to connect with parents. You could sit down and talk about all kinds of things that really we don't talk about with our kids on a daily basis. And now it's so exciting because Loom has come out with a love journal. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Uh-oh. Get ready, baby. <laughs> oh I got it. And it's awesome. Mm. 
It really, first of all, it's beautiful. It comes in either ivory linen or gray linen, and it's really like couples therapy in a journal. So for everybody out there who says, my spouse won't go to therapy, I can't get them to go to therapy, this is a great way to sort of sit and at least break the ice a little bit. And a lot of the questions in it remind me of our date night questions, but you can write everything down. So like really important questions that otherwise you wouldn't ask each other. So you could bring this even to to dinner or when you're sitting down having a cocktail at night together and just sit and like fill a few things out together. I think that sounds nice. It is nice. I would even give that a shot Well, you better think it feels nice. And honestly, with the holidays coming up, Mm -hmm. if you got me this as a gift... Like filled out with all of my loving emotions and thoughts and everything already in the book for you? Well, that would never happen. <laughs> <laughs> but if you gave it to me and we filled it out together, but like even if you just wrapped it and gave it to me, uh, we're talking like a good like three nights of sex. Wow. Of, yeah. I, mean, I got you sure. one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give it to you in three days. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's a year's worth of research, back, back prompts, connection tips, and relationship quotes all throughout it. They have all kinds of tips for how you can connect to one another. And you record your relationship and hold on to it forever. So even when I'm long gone, you'll still have it. Um, it's ideal for engaged or married couples, and it makes a beautiful wedding a- anniversary or holiday gift. So head to loomjournals.com to check out the love journal. And right now, they're, uh, they're pr- it's pre-order because it's brand new. But if you order it, they will be shipped in time for the holidays. So head to loomjournals.com. And enter promo code MNM for 20% off your order. So you could even get some Loom journals for your kids, get a love journal, like an all-in-one shopping experience, loomjournals.com, MNM for 20% off. So what are some other things we should be asking maybe first before we get to that, hopefully maybe hours later? Well, they would argue that you should ask them about some of the things they enjoyed in their day. Right. Ask exactly. them about their favorite class. Ask them about their sports team. Ask them about ask them about the things that you know give them joy and pleasure. Put them in that positive mindset when they get home, rather than the negative one. They refer to it as priming them for happiness, and you want to sort of think about happiness. I mean, one thing in the book that we talk about we talk about mental health and and all of the you know kind of scary things about mental health, but we also have a big chapter on happiness. So that all of these two professors are doing at NYU really are, are relevant and interesting for parents, regardless of whether their kids are college age or, or much younger. There are a lot of takeaways. Yeah, I like that they're starting to shift the conversation to happiness rather than, you know, achievement and academics. I think that's new. It's definitely refreshing. And they're not incompatible at all. I mean, in fact, they have some inter- they quote some interesting studies where they talk about reframing stress, for instance, and they, they did studies where college kids were asked to, Lisa, correct me if I'm wrong, talk about how they were excited about a test as opposed to stress for a test and how that actually managed to help them achieve even more success on the exams. Yeah, There's some other things that they talked about that were really quite compelling. Yeah. It's interesting research. It's new stuff that's being done about reminding our kids of the things that make them happy and trying to reframe stress as excitement and, you know, sort of heightened feeling rather than negative because stress actually does help us perform well. There's a reason we feel stress because it gets us focused. If we have no stress at all or our stress levels get too low and we don't have that same acuity. So they give up parents a lot of great pointers in helping them. Kids, it's one of the best things we can do for our kids while they're home 
because once they're in college, of course, they're going to feel stress as well, and they're not going to have us there day to day. So if we can help them reframe and make stress a constructive force in their life, we've really given them a gift. So what are some things when I think about getting excited about a test? I'm like, oh, well, that sounds awesome. But how, <laughs> what, how do you do what gets a kid excited about a test or about you know, standardized testing or, you know, a lab in science? How do you do that? I don't know that they were actually talking about being excited about a test as much as trying to help them think about a situation maybe where they had gotten, you know, butterflies or animated or, you know, maybe it was an athletic competition where they felt this sort of increasing stress level, but it was adrenaline or it was something that actually helped them achieve a greater performance in whatever they were doing. Maybe it was going on stage. Maybe it wasn't even an academic thing, but it was a situation where they had put them in, um, put themselves in a setting where it wasn't necessarily academic, but it was someplace that they had achieved that where they could relate to that excitement as opposed to stress. So just channeling that energy that. differently. So rather yeah. than channeling yeah. it in a stressful way, you're going to channel it in a, you've worked really hard at this and you're, now you're going to get to show off everything you've done and from that perspective. Or you were nervous before a tournament before and you remember how well it went and remember how that nervousness got you all excited and, you know, ready for the competition. And can you remember, you know, reminding them that how that worked in a positive way in their lives? We have such negativity surrounding the word stress and we need some stress in our lives. So to putting it into context for them, which we can do, we can teach them that while they're still in our homes. I think there's also the athletic analogy and so many kids are really, I don't know if your kids are involved in sports or do or work out or do see you working out, but you have to stress your body to actually get stronger. So to use that as another analogy with them, that there has to be that degree of academic and cognitive stress to actually help you achieve greater things and learn as much like how you're, you want to get stronger physically. Right. And the beauty of failure and that sometimes in failure, we learn our greatest lessons and become the greatest success. And yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that's a good, that's a good thing to remind them also, because I think once you get to high school and you're so, everyone is so hyper-focused on, well, now you got to start worrying about college and every grade matters. And it becomes almost like, oh my God, if I mess up, I'm backtracking or I'm going to somehow mess up my future. And so just by changing the conversation of, no, if you mess up, you get back up and, you know, you try harder. And I think I forget that sometimes, too, when they bring home a bad grade or something. I, you know, I get definitely too negative. We're really emphatic in the book about making sure, you just mentioned something, making sure that high school isn't all about college. So particularly for ninth and 10th graders, and even at the beginning of 11th grade, Yes, kids need to do well and they need to throw themselves into their activities, their music or their drama or whatever it is they do, their clubs that they're involved in. So they should try their hardest at that and they should try their hardest at their academics. But conversation, constant conversation about college, there's two things in our minds. One is it, again, makes our home not a refuge, but instead a place of even additional stress. So that we're doing our kids no favor. But the second thing is, High school is a really, really special time in all of our lives. We all have incredibly strong memories of this period because it's so pivotal in our lives. If you make it all about college, it's almost as if you steal high school from them. They don't really have high school. They just have college prep. And you don't get to watch that movie again. So that would be really unfair to our kids to do that. So we really, really emphatically tell kids, parents, sorry, try not to talk about college until you need to. And that's really 11th grade. That's wow. Okay. That's really interesting. 
I mean, they need to take the PSAT. It's probably, it's probably being given in many of their schools, and they need to do well in their grades. But it doesn't have to be at college. They needed to try their hardest in eighth grade also. Mm-hmm. So it's just about, you know, as between a parent and a child, let some standards of what we think you're capable of, and let's, you know, have you work up to what we think might be a good outcome for you. Not about college, just about doing your best for the sake of doing your best. How about the kid, while we're on the topic of college, who comes to you, I don't know, 10th grade, maybe 11th grade, and says to you, I don't think college is for me. And I realize that it's not for everyone and that not every kid is going to go to college. But for the parent who that has been our goal as their parents, how do we handle that? When do you take it seriously? How seriously do we take it? And how much, you know, do we like give them that freedom? Not every kid is going to do well when they go off to college, especially if they've been pushed to do that and they just in their heart of hearts don't feel ready. That being said, a kid in 10th grade is liable to change quite a bit as they go from 10th, 11th, and 12th. I would let them explore, you know, and think about different options. Think about what do you do if you graduate from high school and you don't go to college? Maybe talk to some young adults who are taking a gap year or talk to some young adults who are working. Let them get, uh, you know, shadow some people or find out what that really looks like. In our Facebook group, there have been so many examples of kids who have gone off to college and it just was a terrible fit. And they might have come home at the first semester. They might have gone on academic probation. It doesn't always work out super well if they are not, if it's not something that they feel in their heart of hearts they're ready to do. So it's a dialogue that we should keep open. It's not a, no, we're not going to talk about this. I would definitely keep open and talk to them about it and try to give them some real world examples of what kids do that might actually make them reconsider the college route. If they see what kind of jobs kids get with a high school diploma versus what they might be able to do with a college diploma, they may also find that maybe uh, working for a year or traveling or doing something interesting or altruistic to kind of get a better handle of what it is they really want to do with themselves does sound really intriguing. There's not yeah, there's a lot, a lot of research at all about how bad it is to send a kid off who's resistant and ambivalent. So that's where a gap year becomes a really terrific option. Working, just having the time to mature. The kids, it's not like when they were small and they had milestones and they all reached them. Or we hoped they reached them around the time. There are no milestones here in the same sense. So many kids aren't ready at 18 and that's just fine. They should be given the time. They're also, if you want to just throw out another option or a thought, there are a lot of colleges that kids can apply to. And once they are in, they can defer that matriculation for a year. So in a way, most colleges. it gives everybody a little safety valve. So as Lisa said, most colleges. So it's, it doesn't mean that they go right from you know high school to college. They can still go through the application process and see how that feels and wait for a year and, and make it just defer their decision. Even though they get in with their class, they can still defer attending for a year. Yeah, that's a great idea. And then that that solves both issues, too, because for those of us who really foresee that in our kids' future, it is it's a good compromise. Scary, but a good compromise. You know, most education experts say (laughs) that kids who defer a year actually do better. So it's it shouldn't be scary for us. It actually should be an opportunity. Okay. you send a more mature kid to college who's more ready to take on the responsibilities. And if your child is young for their grade. 
and they're going off to school when they're 17, giving them maybe another year, even if they're a young 18 year old, giving them another year to just get their sea legs and maybe work for a while and find themselves a bit more, mature a bit more, they'll be much better able to manage that independent life of a college student. I want to go back a little bit because another huge thing that everybody thinks about when we talk about teenagers, it was a big thing in the book also is the issue of privacy. And especially now with electronics, we're constantly battling how much privacy do we give? How much access do we have to their phones, to their laptops, to their texts, everything. And so if you have any kind of gauge for that, because I know as a parent myself who really does trust my kids, I also don't want to be the parent who says, oh, not my kid, you know? And so that's sort of a a struggle. But I don't know, anything you can give us to sort of gauge when is it too much and when is it, you know, not enough? One of the things we talk about in the book, we didn't so much touch on this issue of um, monitoring their social media and their phones, but we did talk about the issue of monitoring their grades online. And there's a sort of a similarity here because there's a privacy issue around, you know, you delving into their information. One of the things you might do is come to some agreements. So either come to an agreement that you're going to let me look at this once a month just so I can glance over and check that everything's okay, or I'm not going to look at your phone. I'm not going to look at your social media accounts as long as you don't X, Y, and Z. So give them the responsibility, give them the benefit of the doubt, show them respect for the fact that they're no longer small children, but also make the consequences clear right up front. If you abuse this trust, then I will be able to see everything that, you know, I will be able to see your Instagram account. I will be able to see what's on your phone. If you don't do and follow through with the rules you and I have agreed to, you could do that both with their phones or social media, but also their grades. You can say, you know, this is the kind of work I think you can do. We both agree this is the level that we expect that you can do. If that doesn't work out, either you're not turning in your assignments or you're not getting the grades that we both feel you're capable of, then maybe I will get involved. But as long as you're handling it the way we both agree to, I will leave it in your hands. You're showing them some trust. One of the experts who is has written for us and who we really refer to quite often is Dr. Lisa Damore, who if you are, I don't know if you've read her books, Danielle, but no, I haven't. Oh my gosh. We adore her. She's, I have one book right here, which I know your readers can't see or your listeners. Under Pressure. Okay. Under Pressure is the second now. book. And um, Untangled, which is fantastic, all about raising teenage girls. And she um, writes for the New York Times quite often. She's on CBS Sunday morning. But she said that she thinks it's really, you know, impractical for parents to sort of supervise everything teens do online. And she's really an expert at all of this. But she's an advocate for using the, as Lisa said, the sort of periodic monitoring to get a sense of how well your kid is doing, and also to have this understanding, you know, uh, she puts it as a phone contract where you can help establish the guidelines that your teens should have in mind when they're online. But she also suggests that you should absolutely have the non-negotiables, which are when you have a teen who starts to drive, never texting while driving, already for your teens, not sharing inappropriate photos or videos. And that's a huge thing to get across to them. I always love it when my kids let me know that they're at a destination, you know, so letting me know that they were back at college was always really kind of a non-negotiable for us, especially once they started driving there. So does that mean not having their passwords to things and not asking for their, or does that mean having their passwords and not using them? 
you know what? I think it would be a great idea, depending on how old your kid is and how long they've had these devices. I think having their passwords at the beginning and seeing what kind of trust you build up with them is really important. And then maybe back off after that. Right. So see if they if they earn it. Right. Yep. Yeah. And another thing, we just did a whole episode on talking to your kids about sex and um, sex positive parenting and everything. But then there's also the issue of drugs and alcohol and being proactive about that without being accusatory and assumptive. So I know you have tips about that in the book. A lot of questions there from our listeners and our community. Anything you want to share about any of that, which might be helpful is great. Sure. We, another one of our favorite ex, experts is Francis Jensen, who's a neuroscientist and uh, doing a lot of research around brain science. She wrote this great book called The Teenage Brain. Another one will make sure we give you the information on. But she talks about brain science in her book in a way that is very understandable. And she believes that rather than us just telling our kids, don't do it, end of story, that we respect the adults that they are becoming and talk to them about some of these scary things that are different about their brain than about adults' brains and respect the fact that they are smart kids and they're gonna be able to get this. And maybe if they get the um, risk to their brains because they're young, that may actually deter them from doing the damage that they can do. I mean, there are things like, you know, binge drinking, which causes cell death in a kid's brain, which would only cause inebriation in an adult. You know, she talks about how the frontal lobe hasn't fully formed with uh, not only teenagers, but with young adults up until their mid to late 20s, especially young men. And the frontal lobe allows you to sort of make sense of things and be organized. And it also can make you disinhibited. And if you add alcohol to the mix of an already disinhibited frontal lobe, you get there that much quicker. So her point is, if you can sit and have uh, rational conversations with your kids about these things that differentiate their brains from adults, they can pay it forward to their brain's health as an adult if they back off and avoid some of the risks at a young age. I just heard Malcolm Gladwell, who just um, wrote a new book, he was just talking all about alcohol and teenagers and how we're not giving it we're giving it a lot of um, emphasis and everything, but we're not for the right reasons and how when a teenager drinks or when anybody drinks, they become completely myopic and only the only thing they concentrate on is what's directly in front of them in the moment, right in front of them. And right. Very impulsive. the ability to with, think about what's going to happen in 24 hours or 48 hours or a month from now. So your decision making is which is what happens on a lot of campuses when kids get in trouble for drinking because, you know, they've lost the ability to see beyond the next hour. Well, especially since they don't have frontal lobes that are fully developed, they get to that inebriated state so much more quickly than an adult does. It's just part of the chemistry and the construction of the brain. And she talks about it in a way that's very understandable. And I think it's required reading for teenage parents yeah, we'll definitely put that. We'll definitely put that on. Yeah, you guys, you cover so much in the book, and I think that it's really great because there's so many small strategies and takeaways that are fully relatable, and that we can all. A lot of what you said, I feel like I can start now, sort of incorporating. And I also feel like some of the things 
the expectations we have for what's going to happen once our kids go to college that that we think the second that they go off to college they're going to automatically you know, not need us as much as they do now. And then if they do, then we think, oh my God, what did we do wrong? But if these are things that we expect and are reading about and preparing for, you know, along the way while they're in high school, then for us too, the transition is so much easier. So I appreciated a lot of that in the book too, because I want to be prepared myself for the emotions that I'm going to deal with. That it really is. My sister said, you know, about her daughter going off to college right now, where she's been gone almost a month. She's like, I feel like I'm dealing like with postpartum again, like a whole different, you know, for us too, it's a huge change. It's a huge change. Every bit as big a change as when you brought your baby home from the hospital. It, yeah. is, it is just 18 years into the future, you have this other seismic shift in, in your relationship with that child and in your family's life too. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, not to be taken lightly. It's a big deal. Right. So I think it's great. I think it's a great resource for everyone. And I thank you so much for talking to us. Thank um, you for having us on. And I know so many people know that on Instagram, you know, your, your Instagram account at Grown and Flown and the Facebook group. So all they have to do is request to join the group. Yep. And we have, we ask them if they're the parent of a high school and college kid and, you know, we love to get their email and love to connect with them in, in the group and on our, in our email list too. Well, you're really a great resource for parents and I appreciate everything you guys are doing. So thank, thank you so you. much. And thank, thank you for you so much. And enjoy the rest of the book tour. It's so exciting. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much, Danielle. All right. Great. Okay. All right. Have a great Thanks. night. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.